Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The rosters are set, and baseball's brightest stars are descending on Los Angeles for the 2022 All-Star Game. You can bet on baseball all summer long with betonline.ag, and you can get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up with our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live. Because it's a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is July 11th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Joining us today on the show is a very, very special first-time guest. His name is Brett Coleman. If you don't know Brett Coleman, he has a YouTube channel, it's called Brett Coleman, and it's got like 370,000 subscribers to it. He's had offers from NFL teams in the past to break down film and such. Brett is a friend of our friend, Walter Mitchell, and I think Brett is now a friend of this here fine programming, so... Brett has a bunch of cool videos. His Twitter is very fun. One of his famous videos is How to Piss Off Bill Belichick, and it's a a very fun video if you want to uh, check that out as well. He's done some really, really popular videos. He's been doing this for like close to a decade now, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit on the show today. Walter conducts the interview because this podcast was done for Walter's podcast, of which I produce the Red Rain podcast. So if you're listening to this on the Take It Easy feed, do me a huge favor. And while you're listening to this, go to the link in the description to this episode, or you can click the link that says CKSAML Productions, because that's kind of what I just title most of the stuff that I do here. And you can go support Walter Mitchell and myself in that podcast and download like 60 of them. We've we've been doing it like a once a week or twice a week for about a year. Brett Coleman was on the show last year as one of the first podcasts when we were figuring out how we were doing it. So check that out as well. It's fun. It helps support Walter and myself and all that's going on there. One of the things that we also talk about during the episode is where I want to do a quick little A block. And it's about my now famous, infamous Josh Allen, Carson Wentz take. And it gets resurfaced again because back in August of 2020, I was convinced 
because people told me you can't teach accuracy in the NFL, and Josh Allen was an inaccurate quarterback who cost the Buffalo Bills. Like, the Buffalo Bills, for people who don't remember, in 2020, they were the five seed in the playoffs, and they were playing the four-seeded Houston Texans on ESPN because the AFC South is always the four-seed in the AFC South on ESPN every playoffs. Sometimes they're the three-seed, sometimes they're the four-seed. They're always in the wild-card game on ESPN. That's the lowest-rated wild-card game of any of the wild-card games. But Buffalo was playing the Texans. This was the first week of January in 2020. And the Bills were up 17-0 on the Texans, and Deshaun Watson had a 20-point second-half comeback, and that was the game where Josh Allen like inexplicably flipped a football backwards while scrambling for a 15-yard play, and he threw an interception late in the game and all that stuff. Like it was there was a legitimate case to be made that Josh Allen was the reason that the Buffalo Bills were not better as a football team. This despite the fact that the Buffalo Bills won like 12, 11, 12 games that year. It just happened to be one of the, the last um, Brady year where the Patriots had the number one defense in the NFL and Buffalo lost that game. And I was convinced that Josh Allen was the thing holding the Buffalo Bills back. But I also felt like the Buffalo Bills weren't going to be able to re- replicate the top four defense that they had in 2019 again in 2020. And I was right about that. The Buffalo Bills ranked 14th in the NFL that year, according to DVOA, in team defense. After they finished, I think, third or fourth in 2019 in team defense. They they had a regression on defense. The 2020 Bills just traded for Stephon Diggs, and Josh Allen had a near-MVP season in the greatest single-season improvement any NFL team has ever had. But to compound the fact... I, you can go back to the pandemic podcast. I want to say it was in um, one in June and one in September of 2020, where I did a podcast that's basically like the Eagles have failed Carson Wentz once in the off season, once <laughs> during the regular season in 2020. The episodes were titled like Carson Wentz is an elite quarterback and or like the car- the case for Carson Wentz or something like that. And the other one was the Philadelphia Eagles have failed Carson Wentz. That was like in September or October of 2020. And remind you, Carson Wentz in September or October of 2020 was like two months away from being benched by the Philadelphia Eagles and replaced by Jalen Hurts. And then they dumped him on the, they got lucky that they dumped him on the Colts and the Colts were willing to overpay for Carson Wentz because what Carson Wentz basically is, is a QB purgatory quarterback at $30 million. He he keeps swapping teams from Eagles to the Colts to Washington. But if he were making $15 million a year, he'd be someone, he'd be Ryan Tannehill. And that's basically the purgatory that Carson Wentz is in, which is, by the way, the exact same purgatory I thought Josh Allen would be in when I first went on Juju, our friend Juju Talk Sports. I first went on his podcast, which now I co-host with him. You can check that out on YouTube with the CKSAML Productions link in the description to this episode. But the first time I ever went on his show with his friend Bob, I felt like... The Buffalo Bills, if they could get a quarterback better than Josh Allen, which was 
any quarterback better than like the, the basically he was Jimmy Garoppolo like if you can get something better than Jimmy Garoppolo you go ahead and do it but if you're the Buffalo Bills and you um can't get anything better you just stick with Josh Allen and you continue to be in that purgatory of 9 and 7 and i was wrong <laughs> Josh Allen was amazing. Carson Wentz was the purgatory quarterback. But, I mean, Josh Allen ended up being better than even I thought Carson Wentz was. Because I thought Carson Wentz was like a fully healthy Carson Wentz was a top five quarterback at the time. I was saying he was like six or seven because you weren't sure how healthy Carson Wentz was. But basically, Josh Allen was Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz was Josh Allen was the premise of that point. And I I thought about this because uh, I've been reading this book that uh, Adam Grant came out with semi-recently it's a book called think again it came out in 2021 and adam grant's this famous psychologist and he does like ted talks and stuff and he's got a million followers on twitter and he's kind of like a famous writer now but also being a professor and a psychologist and all kinds of stuff but adam grant basically is talking about this idea of rethinking our um our preconceptions which i've gotten really good at over the last two years and one of the things he talks about is the joy of being wrong. How when we train our mind not only to think of being wrong and like challenging our beliefs as not just a good thing, but also something that can be enjoyable, like learning something new about the world can be enjoyable. It's it does wonders for our mental health. It does wonders for our outlook on life. We we have more failures and also more successes in life, especially in fields that are dominated by like sales and engineering by his research. It's all very interesting stuff. But what that chapter made me think of in combination with talking to Walter and Brett about this last week was I was so spectacularly wrong that that moment was an inflection point in my life. Like, I can point to being wrong about Josh Allen and Carson Wentz. This was finishing up the first year of doing the daily podcast thing. And again, we've done, what is it now? Let me look it up. 982 episodes on the Take It Easy podcast. So this was probably like maybe 300 episodes in. This was six months into the pandemic. Me at 19 years old, or I guess just turning 19 from 18 and being a completely different person now than I was two years ago. And two years ago, kind of being the same person I was when I was 17, 18. And that moment made me realize, oh, none of this matters. And I can laugh at the fact that I had... Josh Allen, I was so convinced that Josh Allen was going to be like Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz was going to be like Josh Allen. Because remember, Carson Wentz was the white Patrick Mahomes. In 2017, at 24 years old, Carson Wentz was on his way to winning MVP of the NFL. He was going to win Super Bowl MVP, but Nick Foles got it. He would have been the youngest quarterback ever to win league MVP and Super Bowl MVP. You know who did that two years later? Patrick Bleepin Mahomes did that two years later, youngest quarterback ever to win Super Bowl MVP and league MVP. And Wentz was on his way to doing that before he tore his ACL in 2017. And so I was looking at that data and obviously Wentz got hurt again in 2018 and Foles led them to the playoffs. And then uh, 2019 Wentz played the whole season, but he got a concussion in the playoffs and the, the Eagles lost to the Seahawks. And then they tore the whole thing to the ground the last two years and they, yes, they made the playoffs last year, but I thought at the start of the year they might be a tanking team. And 
it was just it was really interesting because they were like eight and one against teams with a sub 500 record and that was the thing that got them in the playoffs but and they lost 30 to zero to Tampa but like the Eagles fell apart from that point and I was so spectacularly wrong because I just had the tall white quarterbacks mixed up I had Carson Wentz being Josh Allen and I had Josh Allen being Carson Wentz and that silliness of staking six months of conversation on those two points carrying content through a pandemic from the end of the playoffs in 2020 so that or 2019 season so like from January of 2020 till October of 2020 like that's 10 months worth of content that's hundreds of podcast episodes that obviously weren't all about football but like through a global pandemic through learning how to do this podcast art and like dozens and dozens of hours of content I got to be so spectacularly wrong about Josh Allen and Carson Wentz that it changed my entire reflection point on life and that's really freaking awesome to think about. Like for some people, it's like, whoa, how could that be so silly? I'm like that fit. And this is, I think, what Adam Grant was talking about in this book. And, and I'm interested in like psychology and social science, as you hear us talk about all the time on this podcast is like, oh, my God, I was so effing spectacularly wrong. Let's reevaluate what happened. And by the way, I'm realizing now this happened last year, sort of with the Cincinnati Bengals, where I was like, I, the the Colts could have done the same thing, and if Lamar Jackson had stayed healthy, the Bengals might not have even made the playoffs last year. And I was so dead set convinced that the Tennessee Titans would lose as soon as they got to the playoffs because they were the Tennessee Titans. And my convictions were correct because my analysis is strong. I'm smarter than like 99.6% of people on this, right? Let's just say America. 99.6% of people in America. I am smarter than them when it comes to sports. Like I know my shit. And now in part, thanks to being wrong about Josh Allen and Carson Wentz, I have the perspective to recognize there's so much I don't know. And that's super exciting. Like it could be daunting and depressing for some people that no matter how much we know, we don't actually know stuff about the world. For me, I look at it and I'm like, I am, I've dedicated years and years of my life every single day to the analysis and detailed observation of sports. I was the kid in the barber shop at nine years old who was like reading off stats about the Minnesota Timberwolves with like Kevin Love. And it was like, I knew I was watched a shit ton of sports center and people knew me as the sports guy. And for someone who had really insecure and naive childhood, it was a great point of identity and social isolation and all kinds of stuff. Like it was a great identity point. And I've spent years and years dedicating free time into turning sports into a job. I call it following my dreams. I'm smarter than most people when it comes to sports analysis. And there's so much shit that I don't know. That's so freaking exciting. That even the, like everyone has their, for people who don't take this seriously or don't take themselves seriously, like they take the craft seriously and the, the work, but they don't take themselves seriously. Everyone's got those takes that are just outlandishly terrible outlandishly terrible in the long run every sports talk analyst has that one it's what freezing cold takes is for (laughs) but when people won't admit it freezing cold takes is great for that it's so interesting where every i can laugh at that now 
And you'll hear us laugh about it a little bit when Brett Coleman joins us in a second. I can laugh at that now. And it's a point of pride where I look at that moment in my life where I was so invested in Josh Allen and Carson Wentz carrying content through a pandemic. It was so invested in that content. And ultimately, it ended up being an amazing spectacularly wrong point that helped me add perspective of like oh yeah even my analysis can be wrong sometimes even I was dead set convicted with dead set convictions on that even I got it wrong and that's so exciting it's so exciting to get stuff wrong and I'm very excited about that so I just bringing that up and revisiting that with Brett and Walter it's a great little thing that I wanted to to talk about because I probably most of you listening to this have not been here for two years. I hope you haven't been here for two years because that old content was rough. But you probably didn't know about the old Josh Allen, Carson Wentz mistakes that were made in the past. I find it to be very fun to revisit that and talk about old podcast memories because even though it's a totally different podcast now and I'm a totally different narrator and orator and I have totally different perspective on life I laugh at the person I was two to three years ago and that by the way that's a good symbol of change and growth in this podcast medium I laugh at the person I was all that time ago and it's great to be able to laugh at it instead of being sad about how dumb I was years ago just so freaking dumb but you know what that's okay. Not just with Josh Allen, Carson Wentz, by the way, just dumb kid in general. I'm still technically a kid. There's so much more to learn and there'll always be more to learn my entire life, but it's just so freaking dumb as an 18, 19 year old. Just, I thought I was the shit and I was just so dumb. Perspective's great for, for when you don't know, nobody knows shit, but the best way to learn shit is to have perspective and seek out new information. It's kind of cool how that works out. And as long as you can tell a concise story about how you got from when you were dumb to how you became smarter, it makes it just a little bit more. If you can tell that story, then you'd be able to uh, laugh at how dumb the old version worked because you know how you know where you started and you know where you are now. And if you can tell a story about the journey in between, it, it makes it a whole lot easier to laugh at yourself. And I'm laughing at myself just about my life. But more specifically about the fact that I said Josh Allen would be Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz would be Josh Allen and was able to make 20 minutes of content reminiscing about all of that wonderful time in a, in a wonderfully depressing part of life for most people. I mean, a global pandemic lockdown of sorts. It, I, I do joke that I'd never been healthier in my life than uh, I was back then, like physical health and uh, mental health going in the tank. Just no oxytocin, no love, and no trust in your life. But altogether, you, you get the, the good with the bad. And, you know, obviously the pandemic year was a really, well, pandemic two years, but pandemic 18 months was a, a really rough time for a lot of people. And my fond memories of that now are being spectacularly wrong about Josh Allen and Carson Wentz and having that spectacularly wrong point of view carry me for... Uh, about nine months worth of content similar to what we just did with the Celtics too by the way I didn't watch regular season basketball I was dead wrong about the Celtics and I love the fact that I was dead wrong 
about the Boston Celtics because it made it so much more interesting when the Boston Celtics swept the Brooklyn Nets and in seven games beat the Bucs without Chris Middleton. And if Chris Middleton had played, I think the Bucs would have won the series, but still the Celtics beat the Bucs in seven games and it made it all the more interesting to see the Boston Celtics be the surprise finals team that I said (laughs) during the regular season was the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference. At one point I said seventh best team, but I did jump from seventh to fifth as Boston had this miraculous uh, turnaround once the calendar hit 2022. By the way, there's a podcast last year I went back and it was like the end of the Milwaukee Bucks championship window. And what I didn't realize at the time is Giannis is so good of a basketball player that simply having him in his prime on your team with a moderately healthy cast of characters they're going to be good enough to win the championship every single year. Just like how I think Denver is going to be one of the favorites in the Western Conference next year. Would I have liked them to get someone better than Murray and Porter as their number two, number three? Yeah, that would be ideal, but I think even still, it's a baseline level of talent that'll be good enough for Denver to be a top four seed in the Western Conference and take down Golden State or take down uh, the Clippers or take down Phoenix or whoever, Memphis, Dallas. It's a lot of good teams in the Western Conference next year. But I was I was wrong about the Bucks. I was wrong about Milwaukee. And I changed my evaluation and learned for next time when I get to be wrong about someone else and the next time when I get to be wrong about someone else. But Maybe they won't all be as spectacularly wrong as my strong convictions that Josh Allen would get replaced by Dak Prescott after the Bills went 6-10 and and that Carson Wentz was an elite quarterback when healthy for the uh, NFC East champion-bound Philadelphia Eagles. Maybe those uh, those strong convictions will not be as... uh, as poignant now because I'm much smarter at doing analysis and know when I'm not confident in the analysis and data that I'm seeing. Uh, Adam Grant calls it thinking like a scientist. I've started thinking about sports a lot more as a scientist and a social scientist looking for objective truths in a world where sometimes opinions about Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills can be more fun when they're uh, outlandish than when they are based in truth. So with that being said, it's a long-winded way of me to uh, talk and laugh and reminisce about good memories and put it all on this fine podcast for you. So let us turn the podcast now over to Walter Mitchell, Brett Coleman, and a little bit of myself, but mostly Walter Mitchell and Brett Coleman doing really, really good football analysis. And if you want more really, really good football analysis, you know the places to go. Cardinal fans to another episode of Red Rain. Uh, today we have um, our distinguished guest, uh, Brett Coleman, of the extraordinary Brett Coleman NFL videos, one of which we're going to be talking about specifically today, titled Why Only 30% of First Round Quarterbacks Succeed. It's a great video if you haven't seen it yet. I wrote an article about it on Revenge of the Birds yesterday called Coleman on QBs. And um, so if you want to um, take a look at, at that article, uh, what I tried to do was apply Brett's pillars. Um, he'll talk about that in a second uh, for evaluating quarterbacks, which, you know, it's, it's, kind of, it's not a science um, for anyone to do, obviously. And, um, and uh, his video is a testament to that. But uh, 
yeah, I tried to apply the pillars, um, the his older older pillars and newer pillars to Kyler Murray. So we're going to get his thoughts on Kyler. Welcome back, Brett. Um, how about this video of yours? Uh, can you tell the fans what you were? That's basically what your um, message was in this thirty uh, percent of first round quarterbacks succeed. You know, it's it's funny because it was it was a cautionary tale to fan bases that draft a first round quarterback that in all likelihood they are going to fail. Um, but it was also kind of an explanation of why a lot of the ones that do fail fail and why a lot of the ones that do succeed succeed. And they come from all different backgrounds. It can be, you know, a freak of nature quarterback from Wyoming. It can be, you know, a guy who, you know, some people didn't even think would play quarterback in the league from Louisville. It can be a guy like Kyler who was, you know, a, a five-star recruit and undefeated in high school. And, you know, everybody knew from the time he was 14, he was going to go to the pros. Like it, a great quarterback in the first round can come from anywhere. But a lot of the great ones that come in the first round share a lot of similar qualities these days and a lot of, shim, uh, a lot of similar situations. Destination really is key. Like that is the number one factor that we see um, in successes and failures of young quarterbacks is they have to be with a coach that knows how to develop. They have to have talent around them on the offensive line and in the receiving core. Like those, those first four to five years of a quarterback's life in the NFL, they need to almost have their hand held or at least have as much support as possible because it might not be until they're a grizzled old veteran where, you know, they can, they can take Kendrick Bourne as your wide receiver one and still make it work. Like it takes a long time right. for a quarterback to get to that point. And so it's just, it was kind of an examination of a lot of the factors that successful quarterbacks share compared to not successful quarterbacks. And to be honest, the, the difference between the ones that fail and the ones that succeed oftentimes is just where they get drafted. Right. Uh, and you make just perfect examples of that with uh, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes versus uh, Josh Rosen and um, uh, Rosen and, and uh, Sam Darnold. Who, uh, by the way, today it's not a great day for Sam Darnold. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, now let's talk about the specific um, pillars that you you um, mentioned, which I was fascinated with. I, I mean, I love stuff like this, and and uh, I too like, you know, I, there's no easy way to evaluate these quarterbacks. And by the way, I want to ask you towards the end of the podcast. Your thoughts on this upcoming bonanza of a draft for quarterbacks next year um, and how these pillars could apply to them. But um, the old pillars that you mentioned, the one, polish mechanics, two, pocket passing prowess, and three, air raid QBs don't work in the NFL. Could you speak about those three and how you you um, you have now modified your thinking on, on those? I mean, I wouldn't even say modified. I would say I just completely threw my old my old criteria in the garbage because in the last 10 years, everything's changed, you know. Now, like, obviously playing from the pocket is important. Like, a big reason 
why the Chiefs have found continued success with Pat Mahomes is he's getting better at playing from within the pocket, playing from within structure. Like that is obviously super important, but it's not the only thing. You have to be able to make plays out of structure in the modern NFL. You know, pass rushes right. are too good these days. Like you're gonna, right. you're not gonna be able to hang in the pocket all day unless you're Tom Brady, um, who has you know four Pro Bowl caliber offensive linemen, and <laughs> you know he's seen every pressure known to mankind. He's like the one exception, but Tom Brady's the exception to everything. For most right. other normal human quarterbacks, you have to be able to move and make plays out of structure, um, and that is more important than ever. In addition. Um, you know, air raid quarterbacks won't work. When I first thought that, it was because at the time, the most successful pure air raid quarterbacks to ever enter the league were, you know, we're looking at Case Keenum, who carved out a pretty nice career at the time. But you pretty much have to go all the way back to, you know, Jim McMahon, Steve Young, and I'll, I'll give you Drew Brees as well. So that's like, what, three great air raid quarterbacks or at least like heavily spread influence quarterbacks right. in 40 years? Yeah. You know, so it, there, there just weren't a lot of them. And most of the great quarterbacks had come from, you know, traditional West Coast passing games. We got a fullback on the roster. We run the ball. It's hard play action. We're sitting in the pocket. All that kind of stuff. The Joe Montana's in the world, right. um, you know, like that. That was what worked for a long time, and so I subscribe to that theory of, hey, if Peyton can do it and if Tom can do it, that's what you go for. And over right. the last ten years, we've seen that get completely flipped on its head. You know, we've seen single back spread quarterbacks like Cam Newton have a ton of success. We've seen, you know, Kyler, who's played in the air raid since he was a teenager, have success. We've seen right. Pat Mahomes, who's an air raid quarterback, have success. Um, it, it's it's completely different now. So I've totally undone my way of thinking because now NFL offenses more than ever look like a lot of the college offenses that we've come to know and love. And that kind of blending of of, of philosophies has now allowed more different types of quarterbacks than ever to have success in the NFL. Right. Exactly. So with your um, new pillars, tools over mechanics, number one, coachability over polish, which I find fascinating. I want to ask you about that. And then destination matters, which I think is, is a, a money play right there. Um, could you talk about them and how, how you arrived at those three as, as your criteria? You know, it was really just kind of examining what's worked over the last, uh, really the, the kind of like young quarterback renaissance we've had since the start of, I would even go back to 2016-ish. I mean, Carson Wentz worked for a little while, and then he got hurt, and he was really never the same after that PCL tear. Um, but like th- there, there was some early success, so I'll, I'll throw that in there. But really, it started to, to pop off around 2017 when Mahomes and, and all them came into the league. And, you know, then we got the, the year after that, it was Josh Allen and Lamar. And then I, I believe the year after that was when Kyler came in. And then right. it was Justin Herbert. And, and it was all these guys that had tons of physical talent. And they had the right attitude. They, they were extremely hard workers. They were very coachable. They weren't... Um, 
quote unquote pro ready by the old definition, but they had a right. ton of natural talent and they were coachable. And so even if we don't see them as, you know, polished prospects, whatever your definition of polished is these days, right? The fact that they had the innate physical ability that could carry them while they got polished was more important than the guys that came in with, you know, proper footwork and, you right. know, they had worked with Peyton and Eli's quarterbacks coach for the last five years, you know, the Daniel Joneses of the world right. who were seen as like the polished pro ready kid, but who had other underlying issues that just comes down to natural talent, natural instincts, natural gifts that, you know, just aren't, aren't quite the same. Like it, it's, it's literally Tua versus Herbert. Tua, very polished, um, didn't have the same kind of gifts as Herbert, but Herbert's gifts are what allows him to do crazy things on the football field while he gets that level of polish. And now at this point, Herbert is, you know, going on year three and he's been around the block and he's seen everything in addition to having those gifts. So now Herbert's like a perennial MVP candidate while Tua, we're just hoping can be Jimmy Garoppolo, you know? Right. So it's, it, it's that kind of rewiring of my mentality where it's like bet on the kid who's talented that, you know, takes coaching well, and then right. trust your coaches to figure it out. Yes. Um, I'm curious too, to ask you, how much do you think like mental toughness and character come into play. I mean, I was so impressed um, with Cincinnati this year and Joe Burrow. Um, I mean, here he was coming off an ACL tear. And, I mean, he was just nails. Um, that kind of toughness and the and the kind of spirit and spunk he brings to the, you know, to the huddle and, and the team. And, you know, you know, there have been so many really talented quarterbacks, but you know, some of the great arms of our, you know, generations, you know, are, have not fared well in the NFL. So could you speak to character and mental toughness? I, I mean, you have to be a dog. And, and Burrow's the perfect example. And I saw an interview with, with Brady recently, a clip of it. You know, and, and he, in so many words, said, you have to believe that you're the baddest dude on the planet or nobody else in the huddle is going to believe that you're the baddest dude on the planet. Right. Like you have to bring that to the huddle every single time. And Brady, you know, didn't even start on his freshman high school team that went winless and he was seventh on the Michigan depth chart, but you know, he got drafted right. in the sixth round, but he walked up to, to the owner of the Patriots first week of camp and said, I'm going to be your starting quarterback. Like you have to believe in yourself right. because nobody else is going to believe in you for you. So believe in yourself, be, you know, have that killer instinct, be aggressive, be competitive. And, and then if you can back it up, you'll have that locker room forever. Right. Just like Brady did. Right. What are you, what, what are your assessments of Kyler Murray after three years? I think he's good. I, I still think that there's, um, there's, there's weaknesses or holes in his game, not necessarily, you know, things that will hold him back from greatness. But it's it's a very similar story to Russell Wilson, where Russell Wilson is a Hall of Fame quarterback and, and one of the best of his generation, but it doesn't mean that he didn't have holes in his game. Right. Um, and, and just like Russell, Kyler doesn't really use the middle of the field that much. Um, I do think that 
he falls susceptible to the same types of pressures that get Russell Wilson, where, you know, if you have edge rushers that take a wider path and force him to step up, um, you can kind of run him into defensive tackles. You can kind of run him into like a late ad rusher on like a fire zone look because they know exactly where he's going to go every single time. Right. And he's going to stop at a certain point because he doesn't like to be in a super confined pocket. Um, so he, he's relatively predictable in terms of how you want to rush him. Right. Uh, and I think teams are starting to catch up to that because they have so much experience doing it, doing it against Russ. And so I think it, right. if there was one thing that, you know, they need to address, it's getting better at being an anticipatory thrower over the middle. Like Drew Brees was like Drew Brees couldn't see what he was throwing at over the middle, but he still was able to you know, anticipate where his guys were going to be based on pre-snap reads and be accurate right. and still get the ball there. Like, that's what they need to work on with him. Right. Is still being a threat to work in the middle, even if you can't see what you're throwing at. Right. Um, and I also kind of want to see them, uh, you know, get Kyler out in space a lot yes. more. Uh, the yep. average uh, bootleg percentage in the league last year was like 6.1%. Cardinals ran it at like 4%. So they're... Right. Two thirds of league average. They don't use motion a whole lot. Um, yeah. I just kind of dug up this stat this morning that kind of looking at NFC West offenses, a lot of them are very static. You know, the Seahawks were like 27% motion, Cardinals were 30%, Rams were 31%. The Niners, to help out their quarterbacks, are like 65% of their targets go to receivers off motion. Wow. So I, I would. And obviously nobody's going to be as high as the Niners because Kyle Shanahan has a hard-on for motion, but I, I would still <laughs> at least up that percentage as much as you can to get guys right. more free releases, get them better matchups, you know, create these windows, you know, right. use more bootlegs, get Kyler in space, all that kind of stuff. And just don't be so static because when you're static and most of your throws are going outside the numbers – uh, right. You become insanely predictable, and then it just becomes harder to execute on a down-by-down -down basis. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, your thoughts on Cliff Kingsbury three years in? Again, I think he's good. Um, I, I do think that there's still a lot of room for improvement. You know, the whole falling apart in the second half of the season is absolutely a trend, um, but I do think it's happened for a different reason every single year, so it's tough to nail down exactly right. what can be fixed with it because there's always something that goes wrong. You know, Kyler gets hurt or the or the receivers get hurt or somebody gets suspended or, you know, J.J. Watt hurts, a, you know, hurts his bicep or his pec or whatever it was. Like, right. something always goes wrong, and it's a different thing every year, but yep. the team always collapses, and that's... It's frustrating for Cardinals fans, obviously, because yeah. how do you trust being eight and two to start the season if you know in the back of your head that there's a very real possibility that you're ending the year like two and six or, or something like right. that? So it's it, I, I'm curious to see what happens this year because it feels like a put up or shut up year. Um, right. But at the same time, are you going to hire anybody better? I, I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean, the Cardinals, they don't have guys lined up at the door every time their, uh, their job comes open. Um, you know, the fact that they've had more guys turn them down for even interviews. I mean, Eric Bieniemy wouldn't interview here. Um, Mike Munchak, they were going to, they designated him a finalist a few years back, and he wouldn't even come for a second interview. 
Um, you know, I, it's a curious <laughs> situation in Arizona. And they got Bruce Arians because uh, he was the last man standing. Um, and his, his year just so happened that uh, he had taken ill during the playoffs and was uh, was being attended to just when, you know, coaches were beginning hired. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, B.A. was still available and uh, the Cardinals jumped in and were able to grab him. And that, that was huge. But uh, typically, you know, they're when the Cardinals do open a job, they're the last ones um, there um, and uh, have to kind of pick from the, you know, the guys who would be either, you know, sort of desperate enough to take an NFL job no matter what. Um, and I hate to put it that way, but sometimes it feels that way. I want to ask you about this curious aspect of the Cliff Kingsbury hire. Do you know any much about Ernie Accorsi, the QB guru GM of uh, the Ravens back in the day, the Browns? I think he was a GM because uh, Michael Bidwell cited a conversation he had with Ernie DeCourcy as to one of the major reasons why he hired Cliff Kingsbury, which I found fascinating. Um, Does anything about that uh, stick out to you? I'm trying to remember what connection they would even have. Mm. I, I'm curious how, because I don't, I don't know, I don't know if Ernie ever ran in those like, you know, spread air raid, uh, you know, Oklahoma or you know, basically southern half of the Big Twelve circles. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm curious how they have a connection. I really am. Right. I it might go back to the even as far back as the NFC East days when the Cardinals and Giants were, were uh, rivals um, and in, in the same division. Um, I don't know. It came out of, you know, left field. I mean, suddenly we're announcing Cliff Kingsbury as a new head coach and, and, you know, Bidwell's saying, um, well, if, if you don't, don't believe me, um, uh, I talked with Ernie Accorsi, and um, he was instrumental in in um, making this happen. I, I looked up uh, Ernie Accorsi's background, and I think this is just kind of what his job has become since he was yep. um, fired as GM of the Giants. It talks about how he was a consultant for the Panthers in their general manager search and the Chicago Bears in 2014. Uh, mm-hmm. He helped the Lions in their search for Bob Quinn. This just—it seems to be one of the things that, of course, he does now in his, right. you know, post working in football career is that he's done right. this with a bunch of different teams. Yeah, as as a GM, he did acquire a bit of a reputation as being one of the more astute quarterback evaluators, um, and uh, so I, I don't. I mean, that was his moniker was QB guru or QB guy, excuse me, Um, which uh, which is which I found fascinating because, you know, Cliff Kingsbury came out of left left field, too. I mean, what a risk the Cardinals took. And I have to commend them now. I think that the fact that the Cardinals pair not only, you know, signed Cliff Kingsbury, but then paired him with the quarterback of his choice, I thought was the best thing they could have done. And, um, you know, they've, 
Kingsbury's made progress um, and uh, and cut with Kyler and you know Brett, what do you think happened against the Rams in that playoff game with Kyler and the and the offense? I mean, other than Aaron Donald. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's really that's the main thing, isn't it? You know, the Rams just they didn't really do anything special uh, and nor did the Cardinals like it, there wasn't anything funky in terms of pressures or anything like nothing they hadn't shown on film earlier that year. Uh, right. The Rams just out talented them. And I think that, you know, I, I don't want to put a label on Kyler that that he folds under pressure. But in that game, at least like he just. He never looked right. You know, right. It, it was almost, I think, and again, I don't want to say ill prepared, but he didn't, he didn't look like he showed up to that game correct. Right. And I, I don't, I don't know why, but it, it was never like they never got into a rhythm once. Right. Like even, even layup throws just were not being ex- executed on a team level. Right. You know, like they just they couldn't even do like gimme early down plays where it's okay, let's just get four yards. Couldn't even do that. Right. So I I think it's not just a Kyler thing. Like Cliff Cliff didn't call a good game. Right. Um the offensive line was awful. Right. You know, it's just D Hop was um you know, dealing with injuries all year. And, and we kind of saw what happened to the offense in total after he started, you know, getting banged up. And right. it's just, it, it was one of those games where it took about 10 minutes into it. And you realize, oh, this is, this, right. this ain't, this ain't going to be it. No, no. And uh, what was your feeling about um, Matthew Stafford? Like in general or just that game? Yeah. I mean, in, in in general, I mean, in the playoffs, I thought you know, he had his ups and downs, but boy, was he clutch at the end of games. And, uh, you know, uh, that's quite a story, isn't it, with Stafford coming in there and in one year um, getting a ring. What do you what do you think of him? I mean, he's the he's kind of the poster child for <laughs> for the new pillars, you know, situations, everything. You know, he early right. on in his career, he did have some help because he had Megatron and. Uh, I think he had Nate Burleson still there. He yep. had some really good receivers and, um, you know, job. I think best. Brandon Pettigrew was still there. Pettigrew was still there. Yeah. Like, he had some weapons early in his career to kind of help get him situated. But towards the end there in Detroit, it was a Matt Stafford show, and he had to carry the load all by himself. Right. And then all of a sudden he got to a franchise where he didn't have to carry the load all by himself. And he had Cooper Cup, and he had Aaron Donald, and he had Sean McVay, and he had a great – you know, run game, even though they didn't use it as much as in past years, they were still very effective when they did it. Um, you know, OBJ was like the number two. It's freaking Odell yeah. Beckham, you know? So he all of a sudden yeah. he had a, a better supporting structure than he'd ever had in his career and immediately wins a Super Bowl. Right. So I think it's poster child for situation is everything, not just for young quarterbacks, but for older quarterbacks too. You know, Tom Brady yeah. towards the end there in New England. Not a great situation. Not a whole lot of talent around him. Right. Goes to Tampa, talented team, immediately wins a Super Bowl. The Colts are trying to right. do the same thing this year. You know, Matt right. Ryan didn't have a whole lot around him late in the, late in Atlanta there. Right. You know, goes to Indy where he's got more talent around him than he's had since 2016 when he went to the Super Bowl. And they're probably going to make a Super Bowl run themselves. So, right. situation, 
is everything for quarterbacks, young and old. Yeah. And the chemistry between the coach. I like the way you highlighted that in your video of, you know, how Josh Allen wound up with Brian Dayball. That was a match made in heaven. Um, I never thought, I mean, it was, would have been hard for any quarterback evaluator to think that Josh Allen could ever throw close to 70%. And yet, oh my God, the guy's, I mean, he's night and day from Wyoming. And that had to do with coaching. And like you said, coachability. And then, of course, with Mahomes winding up with Andy Reid, who, as you astutely point out, has ties to the old spread offenses um, and was able to, you know, cater um, his offense to some spread principles that would fit Mahomes' game. Um, did you think Mahomes took a step back last year? What do you, what's your take on him? I do think that there's always been that kind of element of bad habits. Um you know, with the, the, the drifting too deep in the pocket and trying to get things all in one bite. I mean, he's done that since Texas A&M, you know, or not Texas A&M, Texas Tech, you know, where he just kind of runs around and he goes for shot plays. And, and I, I do still think that sometimes it's like, all right, calm down, play in structure, throw the ball less than five yards for once. And when they stick to that and then, you know, use the shot plays as more of a, more of a garnish and not an entree, right. the offense is unstoppable. Yes. When they when they start relying only on the shot plays and trying to make every play a shot play, that's when they really get into trouble. So, yeah, I think that he's gotten better at that over the years, uh, or at least over the last three years. You know, trying to play more more within structure with each passing season. Right. I think this year, especially without Tyreek, they're going to be relying more on you know, playing within structure and, and you know, right. staying on schedule because the temptation to run around and just throw it to Tyreek is going to be gone. Right. So I, I think this is going to – it's honestly going to look like a very different Chiefs offense because of that. Um, but I think it also might still be a better Chiefs offense because of that. Yes. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see how they adjust. Of course, having Kelsey at tight end is always going to make, you know, make them really special. Um and the big big bodies they have now, you know, they brought in Juju and company. Um, so uh, it'll be fascinating to see what they what they do if they can pick up where they left off. Um, but um, what do you think of Baker going to the Panthers? I think it's good that he he got out of Cleveland. To be honest, it just wasn't wasn't working. Was never going to work. The organization just. At least certain people in the organization didn't believe in him. There's there's still people in that in that building that do believe in him, but you know, when the owner yeah. makes a decision, the owner makes a decision and there's nothing that there's nothing the GM or the coach can do, you know, once the owner decides, hey, we're gonna do this, even right. when they tell him not to. So it is what it is. Sometimes owners do that. I mean, you're a Cardinals fan, you know that you know right. that well and good by yes. now. Um, but you know, good for Baker to get out of that situation and go somewhere that will give him a chance to play again. Right. Because he, in my opinion, kind of got shafted. Like he played hurt. He made him, he, he got hurt even more by continuing to play. Um, and he, he put his body on the line for that team and they, they sold him out in order to get a quarterback on the roster. That's probably not even going to play this year. And for good reason. So 
he's right to be pissed. He's right to want to be out. And uh, I'm happy that, that he, that he did get out. What kind of a chance do you give him in Carolina? I think he'll start. Um, as for how well he'll do there, it's tough to say. I mean, they've, they've really upgraded the offensive line compared to last year. They've added a couple good pieces. So it'll be a better offensive line than they've had either of the last two, maybe even three years. Um, you know, Christian McCaffrey's coming back healthy. They do have some receivers that I really like. DJ Moore is there. Robbie yes. Anderson's there. Um, yep. Terrace Marshall's a young kid they drafted who I like a yes. lot. So they've got they've got some weapons. They the do. offensive line's improved. I'm still not entirely sure in terms of play calling what's going to happen there, but um, right. we'll see. But I think if they lean into what Baker does well, which is honestly he's another one of these quarterbacks that does really well on bootlegs and kind of getting out in space and throwing on the move and you know emphasizing play action and RPOs and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. If they emphasize that and basically just rip off the Packers playbook, uh, I, I think they'll <laughs> yeah. I think they'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, um, that's going to be a fascinating division now um, with Brady. I mean, I mean the Falcons have taken are in a rebuild. I mean, it's a good year to be in a rebuild without a quarterback because peeking ahead to this 2023 draft. My goodness. Um, well, Todd McShay has five quarterbacks going in the top 10, which I'm going to yeah. ask you about in a second. But, uh, you know, before I do, I just want to stick here for a minute and, and ask you about a couple more quarterbacks that I know our fans are interested to see what happens. What do you put on, you know, look into your crystal ball. What do you see for Jimmy G this year? I, I think he's going to get traded um, probably around training camp. Um, I think the team is waiting to see if somebody gets hurt. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very similar move to, um, you know, when, uh, when, when Bridgewater got hurt and then, uh, you know, the, the Vikings oh, had to uh, suddenly uh, trade for Bradford. Yeah. I, I think they're trying to pull the same thing where they're going to see if somebody gets hurt. And then leverage Jimmy being a capable starter, emphasize right. the word capable, right? Just to see if they can get a second round pick out of it because that's what they want. Yeah, um, I don't think they'll get more than that, and it would take a desperate team to be able to get that. But hey, Carson Wentz went for a conditional second, so you never know. Yeah, yeah. Don't get Kyle started on Carson Wentz. <laughs> oh, I'm boy. not mad about it. <laughs> Okay, yeah, going into the 2020 season, I said Carson Wentz was an elite quarterback and Josh Allen would get replaced. And I just needed to flip those two around and I would have been exactly correct. <laughs> I was exact. I was on the right path. I just needed to flip the two names around. I would have gotten it exactly correct. I just had Allen being Wentz and Wentz being Josh Allen. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. Uh, well, let's stick in the division. What do you think about Trey Lance? Um. I, I don't know yet, to be honest, because right. um, it, it seems like every week we get a conflicting report out of camp of like, yeah. oh, the Niners are concerned. And then, oh, the Niners are actually fine. And, oh, he's having accuracy issues. And, <laughs> oh, but they redeveloped his mechanics. And, oh, but his arm is sore and he needs off days because of how he throws now. And it, I don't know. I really have no idea. I'm going up to Niners camp myself to see in person in, in oh, a few good. weeks. Um, cause I, I don't, I, I don't know what to trust. So I just trust right. my eyes. Right. Um, what's going on in Seattle with Drew Locke? 
I still think Geno Smith starts. Not going to lie. <laughs> I, I, I really do. I'm, I'm sorry. I burst out laughing at that. It's just perfect because yeah. I've been saying since 2020 that Drew Locke is not an NFL quarterback. <laughs> and the fact that you said Geno Smith would start over him was just the most pleasing thing ever. Because everyone's like, Drew Locke can be good in the right offense. I'm like, no, he's not good at quarterback. And I'm just <laughs> glad to hear you say that Geno Smith would start over him. I'm very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> It, Gino Smith's better than people think. Actually, I think he's he's solid. I mean, uh, as backups go, but uh, but yeah, I think that they clearly are going to wait a year, tap into one of these stud quarterbacks coming out of this draft. Um, okay, Brett. So, going to throw some names at you and just see what f- comes to mind. Um, Bryce Young. Uh, so I actually am a modern day alum, which is the high school that Bryce Young went to. So I've been watching him play since he was a kid. Um, he's phenomenal. Like everything that, that you've heard about him is accurate. I remember talking to his high school offensive coordinator who lives, you know, just one hill over from me. Um, and this is the same guy who, you know, coached Matt Leinard and Colt Brennan and Matt Barkley and, Every modern-day quarterback you can think of that inevitably went to the NFL or played, you know, high-level D1 football, he coached them all, and he said Bryce Young is by far the best. Um, and that that's saying a lot. Like, they had yeah. just come off of JT Daniels, who was a five-star kid who set every single, you know, CIF record, and then Bryce Young came in, and he's like, yeah, that's different. Uh, he's he's going to be well within the running for first overall, and he's earned it. He is phenomenal. Yep. I know he's small, but um, I think the, the size thing is, is something that teams have gotten over in the last yep. decade or so. If you can spin it, and if you're good under pressure, and if you got a good head on your shoulders, you're going to go first overall. I think he fits that bill. Yeah. I love how he manipulates the pocket, too, for a kid that young. Um, really buys time well. Keeps his, keeps his eyes down in the field. Uh, yeah. Agreed. CJ Stroud, Ohio State. Uh, I'm still trying to figure him out. I've only I've only um, watched to watch like three games of him in depth. Um, yep. One of them was early in the season, and one of them was late in the season, and he looked like a completely different quarterback. So uh, I I'm curious to see if that kind of development arc keeps going this year. Because again, I, I just right. don't have as much exposure to him as I do with Young. Yeah. But if if the quarterback that I saw eight games after the first time I saw him is only part of the way through development. He's also going to be another guy that's going to be in contention for number one overall, because he's got a ton of talent and um, at least decision-making wise late in the year versus early in the year. Like you could tell he really got a grasp of, of the concept of what was trying to be executed later in the year and decisions were snappier. They were quicker. Um, You know, he wasn't taking as many chances with the ball that he didn't need to. It was. It really did look night and day. Yeah, yeah. Good, good assessment. Um, Will Levis, Kentucky. Uh, I like Will Levis. Uh, I think it's going to be a rough year for him just because a lot of the best talent around him at Kentucky left, right. uh, and they're in the pros now. Right. So he's going to be the classic case of man, tons of talent, great kid. Terrible supporting structure at the moment, uh, and they play in, oh, by the way, the hardest conference in yeah. the country. So, 
a lot of people are going to be down on Levis this time next year, but you're you're going to have to watch the 2021 film to get a better evaluation yes. than you will out of the 2022. Yeah. That's that's my thoughts. Yeah, just does he remind you a little of Josh Allen? Not as talented, but that's also yep. because yeah. nobody is really as talented right. as Josh Allen. Right. But right. I do think that in terms of uh, in terms of the guy that's going to have to pull the wagon by himself, just like Josh right. did at Wyoming, it, it'll be pretty similar. Right. How about Anthony Richardson, Florida? Uh, I'll be honest, I've not got to him yet. Okay. Tyler Van Dyke. Uh, fun Miami. kid. I've only watched two games of him. Yep. Uh, size, arm talent. Curious yep. to see what he does this year. Um, the, the two games I watched were not against quality defenses, so it's tough for me to really give a, a hard line right. opinion on him. But right. um, looking at the Miami schedule, which I'm just pulling up right now, um, his toughest game. Oh, he's got he got a game against Texas A&M. They got a lot of talent up front. Um, right. The Clemson game is probably going to be big for him too. And oh, he's playing against Virginia Tech on the road at VT. That's a tough one too. So based on how he does in those three games, I'll probably have a better idea of where I'm at on him. But the right. two games that I watched um, for for from this past season were just not against uh, quality programs. Right. Right. I know it's way early, and so I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm just so fascinated just in, just in what you've seen so far. Have you seen anything of this kid, Grayson McCall, Coastal Carolina? Uh, I, I, I know people that love him, but I right. personally have not watched him yet. Okay. Have you watched, I mean, you're a West Coast guy, Jaron Hall? Um, I, got, I got through a game of him. And yep. I, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, he's on my list to get to early on in the draft process next year. Right. Um, because right. I'm, I'm usually so focused on the 2021 kids that I, I, right. as I go, you know, it's like, Oh, he right. catches my eye while I'm watching somebody else. Right. So as I go, I jot down notes for like my list to get to starting in like October, November for next yeah. year's draft. And, but it, I will say he was one of the kids where you watch somebody else and then you look up right. who the number is. Right. Yeah. Tanner McKee. Stanford? I uh, have not got to him yet, even though okay. I ironically did watch a lot of Stanford. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, one more name, Devin Leary, North, North Carolina State. Uh, yeah, because I watched a lot of NC State. I, I, I thought yeah. it was all right. Um, I, yep. I kind of got like late day two, early day three vibes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's going to be interesting to see how he plays this year. If he goes lights out, which I think he's got a team around him that is capable. It, um, definitely, because NC State's recruiting has been great, but boy, yeah, they've lost yeah. a lot of talent the last couple of years to the league, too. They have, you're right. And that offensive line talent um, that they've been churning out lately has been pretty impressive. So um, another thing that I think our fans would really – want your take on is what you think of USC and UCLA going to the big 12, big, big 10 rather. I think uh, if the reports are accurate about UCLA completely bleeding money and needing to do this to keep their athletic program alive, it makes a little bit more sense in that context. I, I would have rather the PAC 12 stay together, obviously. Um, As as somebody who's grown up watching PAC 12 football as a California resident, like that's what I want. 
Right. But if UCLA felt that this was the only way financially that they could keep athletics going, first of all, I'd wonder how they how their money's being managed to have that be a thing in the first place. But like UCLA, again, I'm a Southern California kid. Like UCLA has always been academics first and the only sport they really care about being dominant, or at least for a long time, the only sport they really cared about being dominated in was basketball. They were a basketball school. Um, Chip Kelly, I think has helped to flip that a little bit where, you know, UCLA football is kind of coming back, but Right. If the if the people running the school felt like it was either go to the Big Ten or sacrifice athletics because they're not going to divert any money away from education, nor should they. I mean, they're a school after all. But um, right. if they felt like the only way to save the athletic program was to go to the Big Ten, like obviously USC is going to go with them too. Um, right, right. So it, it, it makes sense from that standpoint, but I also don't. I also don't like it because now, you know, you're leaving Arizona and Arizona State and Stanford and Cal twisting in the weeds like Oregon can jump right. ship anywhere because they're Oregon and maybe right. Washington. But, you know, like the the the, the Utah's and, and the Bay Area teams and the Arizona teams like they're all just kind of in limbo now. Right. And it sucks for them because yep. the presence of USC in that conference is a big money generator for the conference as a whole. That's right. Yeah. Before also before we go forward, because I think we all know what we're talking about, but this wasn't a story that got a lot of national coverage. So just for the, the listening audience, on Wednesday the LA Times reported that UCLA's athletic program was a hundred million dollars in debt. And there was talks about if they didn't make the Big Ten move, they were gonna cut roughly half of their athletic programs wow. sometime in the next three to four years. Um, part of the explanation they talk about is that UCLA signed an eight-year deal with Under Armour, and then Under Armour went to near bankruptcy like two years in, and so they basically just defaulted on that um, apparel oh, contract. Wow. Yeah, and so part of that played into how UCLA ended up a hundred million dollars in debt. So there's context for people who may not have known exactly what UCLA needing a lifeline from the Big Ten was was all about. Yeah. I didn't know about the Under Armour part. But that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That, that was something that happened. I think it was like 20. It was around the time Under Armour signed Steph Curry. And there was like they like they signed big deals with like a bunch of programs because they're like with the sell of the Curry shoes and the athletes that they were signing, they would get a massive revenue increase and it just never happened. So they basically just started defaulting on a bunch of the contracts that they had signed with people and. I think UCLA got a deal with Adidas after that, but like there was a couple of years where they were like in limbo on who was going to represent UCLA on their apparel contracts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, their AD came from my alma mater, Boston college, Larmont. Um, he did a good job at BC, but he was only there for like a couple of years. And then, you know, he got the UCLA gig. But yeah. now, I mean, it sounds like it's just, you know, as, as it almost always is, is financially driven. Now, Brett, do you think Notre Dame ever ever settles down and plays in a conference? If they do, they're going to the Big Ten because yeah. they got to keep up with recruiting because every right. team's got money at this point. But now – 
it's not only do they have money, but they can sell to these kids like, oh, you're going to be playing Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, uh, USC, like, you know, Wisconsin every single year come to our program. So not only are you getting a whole bunch of nationally televised primetime games to show out, uh, which then drives up NIL revenues even more. But, oh, by the way, we have 13 billionaires as alumni over at USC that continue yeah. to. Like, Notre Dame has money. They have plenty right. of money. Right. But they need to be in a conference now that that is going to allow them to play that type of schedule. So I do think that they're going to relent and, and go Big Ten because playing an ACC schedule ain't going to cut it. Like they got to play a Big Ten or they got to play an SEC schedule, and out of the two, they're going to play Big Ten because it's again more regionally um, makes makes sense. Oh yeah, regionally. So I'd be willing to bet that the Big Ten, in terms of extra schools they're adding on top of USC, right? It's going to be Oregon and Notre Dame are their first call, and then if Notre Dame does something stupid and doesn't go to the Big Ten, then they'll give Washington a call. But like right. that's that's kind of where I think this is heading because. Like, if USC goes to the Big Ten, I don't even know if they're still going to play Notre Dame every year because oh, right. there's so many other teams within that right. conference, that, and the Big Ten's going to want them to play that Big Ten schedule, and it's going to be harder yeah. to do, you know, a, an extra major non-conference game with Notre Dame if you have to play a full Big Ten West schedule and then also, you know, cram in some Big Ten East games, too. Like you're still only playing twelve to thirteen games a year, and if the conference is sixteen team or sixteen to eighteen teams large, like you got to play all those guys. So, right. I think the Big Ten, they or uh, I think Notre Dame has to go to the Big Ten at minimum to guarantee that USC game every year, which they need access to Southern California recruiting, so they need that USC game. Good point. Like, I, yep. I just I I think it's necessary. It really is. Yeah, yeah, really good point. All right, so Cardinal fans, um, this is the time of the program. You might want to pause and grab a pen or a pencil because Brett's about to give us his cocktail du jour um, for this Thursday. Um, and if you've seen his videos, man, one of the highlights is watching him, his mix, mixology <laughs> at work and his talents. So, Brett, the last time was, was this – Wonderful um, red, I forget what you called, <laughs> and I tried it. It was amazing. So, what do you got going for tonight? Ooh, um, I, I I still have a lot of um, jalapeno infused honey syrup left over that I made for a Rams inspired cocktail, which I know it's a Cardinal show, so they're not going to make a Rams drink, <laughs> but uh, it's basically like a hot honey margarita variation but it's blue because i use blue curacao instead of orange liqueur even though blue curacao is still yeah. technically an orange liqueur anyway so it works it tastes like a margarita but with jalapeno and mezcal and honey in it and uh Whoa. it's pretty damn good wow fantastic uh you always come through in the clutch so um so to to finish this out I mean, what projects are you working now? So I just released uh, an episode today on what the Cooper Cup role actually is in the Rams offense um, yep. in terms of how they run the ball out of 11 personnel and why Cooper Cup's blocking ability, because they basically use him like a tight end. 
He's a yeah. he's a receiver that's used like a tight end. You know, we're, right. we're used to seeing tight ends used like receivers. He's the he's the other way around. Um, but Kevin O'Connell going up to Minnesota, uh, I think they're going to use Justin Jefferson the same way as kind of the tip of the spear right. in terms of running the ball out of eleven personnel. So I kind of did an episode on wide receiver run blocking and how that affects a run game and why it works and why you need a certain type of receiver to be able to do it awesome. and why most teams can't do it. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Justin Jefferson is right about Cooper Cup. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and as a follow-up to Jordan Davis is a 340-pound ball of rage. Wow. He is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, man, I got to I got to check that one out. Oh man, what a coup for the Eagles. Um they're going to be an interesting team to watch. <laughs> Got all kinds of talent, man, but what do you speaking of quarterbacks? What do you think about their quarterback situation? I mean, I had a, I had a first round grade on Jalen Hurts, so I've always been a Jalen yep. Hurts fan, and he's yep. steadily gotten better. I mean, yes. even going back to his freshman year at Alabama, every single year he's better than last. So, yeah. luckily for him, this is also the most talented Eagles roster there's been since they won the Super Bowl back in 2017. They've done a really nice job, kind of restocking that cupboard. So I think he's going to take another step forward this year, continue being yeah. a quality starter, not just an average starter, but a quality starter. And uh, with that kind of roster, if you're just getting quality starting quarterback play, they're a playoff team at a minimum. And then once they get to January, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. What I've always loved about Hertz is his mental toughness. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, the way he handled the whole Alabama situation, I thought was just pure class. And, um, and grit and the way it came to bounce back at Oklahoma. And, yeah. That's a kid who you can't keep down for too long. And I think character does win at that position. Um, and uh, I, I, I like him a lot. I think he's underrated, but yeah, I mean, uh, Whoa. He, struggled, he struggled last year at the end as well. A bunch of the quarter, like Dak Prescott did too. Um, there was kind of a falling out uh, there and, um, with Prescott struggling at the end. Um, and so we'll see who bounces back this year. Now, one last thing before we go, what's fascinating to me, and I wonder, wonder what your take is no quarterback has won a Super Bowl making more than $26.5 million. Really? Do you, do you think, yeah, in fact, it was Matt Stafford who broke the record last year, 25 26.5 uh, was his, his cap hit. So we're talking about cap hits, right? And I know Brady's playing for 11.2 this year. <laughs> I mean, that's of course he is. It's Brady. Right. Of course he is. Right. Yeah. Cause the Giselle. <laughs> All right. Let's not get into that debate, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um so, Wow, I mean, I mean, when you think about it, do you think we'll ever see one of these forty-five to fifty million dollar guys win Super Bowls? I mean, is it feasible to pay a quarterback like a quarter of your of your um, salary cap and still have enough to put the pieces around them to win championships? What's your take on that? If the deal is structured like Mahomes, 
where it's manageable on a year by year basis and it's very easy to spread it around and right. like, it, you know, it's like a 10 year deal so that they can just right. keep, keep kind of kicking the can down the road as, as cap space becomes larger and larger as TV, TV deals kick in. If the deal's structured like Mahomes, Yeah, sure. Right. But you know, no other team has structured a deal like Mahomes yet. Yeah. So he, he, as of right now, it's very similar to a Brady situation. It's a one of one type contract. Um, and I, yes. I unfortunately, uh, when it comes to generational quarterbacks, you might need a one of one type contract to go with a one of one type quarterback just to make this thing work. Yeah, like we'll we'll see. Like maybe <laughs> Buffalo just keeps drafting well, so that by the time Josh's cap hits come in, it doesn't matter. But he would be the first. <laughs> All right, last question. Um, what underdog team do you see breaking through this year? I mean, the Bengals did last year. What, what, you know, is there a team you think, oh, my goodness, they could be sneaky good and sneak up on people? You know, I, is it weird to say the Patriots are, are, are sneaky good? Because yeah. like, <laughs> right? I, I really do think so. I mean, people don't realize this, but with a rookie quarterback and – um, you know, a receiving core that was averaged at best, they right. were top seven in points per game. Like they, they scored right. just barely. It was like one point per game less than the bills, you know? Yeah. So th- it, they were a very effective offense and their talents better this year. Um, so yes. they're a lot faster, like defense. I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how some of their personnel changes. Cause they're, they've made efforts to get faster there too. So I'm really curious right. to see how that works out, but Right. I feel like people are weirdly for the first time in 25 years <laughs> sleeping on the Patriots. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that they're a better squad than people give them credit for. I agree. And uh, I've been saying that myself. Uh, so f- let's finish it with Mac Jones. How did you rate him and what do you think? I thought he was a better prospect than Tua coming out. And so far yeah. he's played better than Tua in the NFL. So at least that part's holding true. Um <laughs> I think that he's a he's a quality quarterback, um, really nifty in the pocket, yep. good arm talent. Not great arm talent, but good arm talent. Um, I think he's exactly what New England needed to kind of get them out of the, the post-Brady potential rut that they were about to find themselves in. Right. He's a good kid, um, or a good player, I should say. And I think that he can, you know, maybe be like a Derek Carr type where he's always in that like top 10 to 12 quarterback type discussion and and you have a legitimate shot to win with him. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I like his – his uh, he too strikes me as a mentally tough kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, can hang in there, make plays. What I love about him is uh, how he – I think he's got – very good timing on his release um and he's pretty dang accurate i mean i was amazed at how well he played at alabama that last year um his throws were on schedule and on target left and right and i saw a little bit of that last year of course i live five minutes from gillette stadium and um you know i I saw things in him last year that that impressed me as a rookie and uh Man, he even made it to the Pro Bowl and did his little dance in the end zone. Yeah, as a rookie. Funny. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, yeah, um, you know, as an alternate 
they were running out of QBs and they got him down there. And, um, yeah, it was, he, he acquitted himself well, but, uh, yeah, I like your choice there. My, my, uh, Boston area friends who listen to this podcast are going to be loving you now, boy, they're, you're going to get extra, <laughs> hit, get extra hits on the Brett Coleman channel on YouTube. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's a, a work of art. Put it this way: great graphics, a great ambiance with Brett and the you know the TV on and the cocktail, and um, so um, you know give support him and subscribe to his channel because it's great stuff. And it was really pre- pleasure to have you back, and uh, wish you well this summer and um, good luck at Niners camp. Would love to hear. You know, obviously, we'll see a video or two from your experience there. And uh, who do you who who are your favorite teams? Who do you follow? You're Texans, right? So I'm I'm a Texans fan for the AFC and a Bears fan for the NFC. So I'm kind of cursed either way. (laughs) Oh man! Uh, See, I love. See, we can relate. Cardinal fans. Now you just made huge props with them too, because we can relate. You know, and, and, uh, <laughs> but I like your two quarterback situations, those young quarterbacks, um, you know, uh, Davis um, Mills, um, I thought played really well as a, as a yeah, no, a Mills rookie. was great. Mills was one of yeah. the three best rookie quarterbacks in the league last year. Yeah. Um, I really liked him. And then, uh, you know, with fields, uh, get him with the right coach and who knows, I yeah, mean, you know um, the talents there. Did you have him high, highly rated? Oh yeah, I had I had Fields going like second overall. Oh great! So you must have been psyched when the Bears tabbed him. Yeah, but you know, situation is everything. Theme of the day, and uh, unfortunately, Chicago wasn't a great situation for a rookie quarterback. Do you think he's in a better situation now? Uh, I mean, in, in the same type of way where, you know, if you're on a bed of nails and then somebody flips you over into a pot of lava, like maybe that's better, but. (laughs) Oh, great metaphor. (laughs) Oh, well, well, who knows that, uh, (laughs) that NFC central, you know, is, is, uh, is really a, a hodgepodge now of teams, especially with. You know, um, Devonte Adams gone from from Green Bay. Although their roster's pretty jacked, so but still, but maybe the Bears. Well, you never know. But uh, it's good to know who your teams are. And um, I I knew Texans because I've seen you in Texans jerseys, and and I know how much you covered the DeAndre Hopkins um, trade, and uh, you know, so all about that. So I really appreciate you. You join us again, and uh, listen, have a great summer, and I hope to talk to you soon. You too, guys. Hope you have a good one.